So Joshua chapter 2, starting at verse 1. This is God's word. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. But the women had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax that she had laid out in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterwards you may go your way. Then down to verse 23. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly, The Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. This is God's word. It's been a few weeks now since, um, well, we've been looking at this this series called Taking Possession. And we're going through large parts of the book of Joshua. And so this is week two in in this series. And taking possession is all about entering into God's promises, God's covenant promises for our lives. It's all about receiving the blessing that he holds out for us in Jesus Christ. It's all about entering the kingdom of God and seeing that kingdom coming and anticipating the completion of that at the end when he brings the new heavens and the new earth. But all of this necessitates a God who's in control, a God who has power. Otherwise, there's no hope of entering into a time of blessing. Because we we saw a few weeks ago that that God promises Joshua again and again, I will be with you, I will be with you, which is great. Only if God has power, only if he is the king, if he's sovereign, 
Because if he's not, then that promise means practically nothing at all. So we're going to have a look through this passage. We're going to think about uh, this under a couple of headings. We're going to ask ourselves, first of all, what is, what is the sovereignty of God? What does that mean? What does it mean that God is sovereign? Secondly, we're going to ask ourselves, what difference does it make that God is sovereign? We're going to look at the responses in the, the Bible text we just read. And thirdly, we're going to ask ourselves, how does God then take his sovereignty and apply it to us? How does it come to us, if you like? Okay? So first of all, what does it mean that God is sovereign? And if you are uh, from what you might call a, a, well, at Foundation Church, we say we're reformed in theology. That means we we sort of uh, trace our theology from the the broad stream of, of thinking from the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century right through to today. And, and quite often, if you read stuff written by these theologians, you'll hear them talk all the time about the sovereignty of God. So what does it mean? What is, where does that come from? Well, quite, quite simply, sovereignty means that God is, is king. He is the sovereign. He's over all things. He's supreme. There's no one greater or higher than God. That's what it means that he's sovereign. Where do we get this from in this text? Well, um, the story that we've, we've just read together, the account picks up the fact that Joshua, the, the sort of commander-in-chief of Israel, sent these two men, they don't, we don't know their names, they're sent to spy out the land in Jericho. It seems that like this was sort of standard military tactic. Before you try and invade a certain territory, you send people to put the feelers out, to do a recce, to find out what sort of enemy you've got and to try and uh, realise how many people you'll need to overcome them. Anyway, these spies were sent out. They went across the River Jordan into Jericho, the first city that you come up against. And it says they went up there to stay in the house of Rahab. And Rahab, we'll find out a bit more about her in a few moments, she conceals these two spies, she hides them. And in the center of this entire story, while the spies are hiding, and while she's talking to them up on the roof, she makes this great confession in verses 9 through to 11. And it culminates in this statement that she says in the second half of verse 11. She says, For... The Lord, your God, he is God of the heavens above and on the earth beneath. You see, when it comes to uh, Hebrew, the Old Testament, uh, written in the language of Hebrew, the, the, the central point, the climax, is often put at, not at the end of a story or an account, but right in the middle. And so it seems that the, the, the writer of Joshua chapter 2 wants to highlight this central confession that Rahab makes. The Lord your God. He is sovereign. He is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. That's another way of saying he's God above everything. Everything in creation, seen or unseen, God is above. He's higher. He's greater. He's above all gods. There he is. The God of Israel. Yahweh, his name is. Why why would Rahab make a statement like that? Is it just sort of the kind of thing they throw around in the ancient Near East? Is it just what they said to one another? Is there any evidence in this claim that she makes that God, the God of Israel, is higher and greater and above every other God? If I stood here this evening and claimed to you that I'm the fastest man over 100 metres in the entire world, you might raise an eyebrow and you might say to me, well, go on then, run 100 metres and we'll time you. We'll see how you get on. Or if I stood it this evening and said to you, I am the strongest man in the world, you might say to me, well, lift something and we'll see. Or if I said to you, I am a virtuoso violinist, you might say to me, well, play something and we'll listen. 
you would be right to ask me for evidence if I was making these amazing claims about myself and my abilities. The question is, can that claim that I make be substantiated with evidence? Can I demonstrate that what I'm talking about is true and right? When it comes to me, I'm certainly not the fastest man in the world. I'm not the strongest man in the world. I'm certainly no virtuoso violin player. But when it comes to God, can his claim that he is sovereign and above all things, can that be substantiated? Is this just some words that have been made up and sort of, you know, talked about by lots of Jewish people across time, lots of Christians? Or does God actually prove that he is sovereign, that he is the king over all things, that he is greater than anything? God is sovereign. And we say to him, okay, prove it. See, for God to be sovereign, let's say, if God is to be sovereign, he has to do something, we would say, he has to do something amazing to prove that he is sovereign. He has to do something extraordinary for us to say, yeah, you're sovereign. He has to interrupt the ordinary flow of, of nature and, 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 and do something incredible that would not otherwise have happened if he had not have done it. He has to do something that cannot plausibly be explained by any other means or mechanisms. For God to prove that he is sovereign, he has to do those things, not just as a one-off event, not just a few events, he has to prove time and time again, over, over years, over decades, over centuries, amazing, extraordinary, one-off things. For us to say, yes, we believe that you are sovereign. And so, we see... This is what happens in this passage. In verse 10, Rahab to the spy says this, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came up out of Egypt. It, you may or may not be familiar with the background of the history of Israel, but the people of Israel, the tribe of Israel, were enslaved, they were oppressed in Egypt for about 400 years. And eventually, they were delivered to freedom through a series of plagues, you know, Moses coming to Pharaoh, let my people go, and it didn't happen, another plague. Ten plagues later, eventually, the entire nation, the, the, the tribe of Israel, were released. And a few days out of Israel, uh, Egypt, they went towards the wilderness, and it says that suddenly Pharaoh had a change of heart, another change of heart, sent the army after them. And Israel were, were, were coming up to the Red Sea, this vast expanse of water, Red Sea behind them, they had the Egyptian army chasing up in front of them. They had nowhere to go. They were at a near-death experience. And it says there that God, as you see in the, the book of Exodus, caused the waters of the Red Sea to part and for Israel to walk through, hundreds of thousands of them, to safety on the other side. And the Egyptians tried it and they got engulfed. They got drowned. They got killed. And they say... We have heard this story. This is Rahab and her people. We have heard this. Not just that. It says later on, we've also heard what you did to two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to total destruction. Not only did the account of what God did at the Red Sea spread across the ancient Near East, but so did their military conquest against these two Amorite kings. Who are these kings? They're two powerful kings, owned many cities in that area. 
seemed to be that the, the Canaan, I suppose you could call it, that area of the ancient Near East was, was, was a lot of city-states, you know, fortified cities with big walls around them, rather like Jericho. We'll see that in the next few weeks. <clears throat> and Israel overcame these two strong kings in war. No one thought that Israel would win, and yet they came to victory. And again, you see, God showed up. God stepped in. God proved that he was sovereign by giving them the victory. And again, in verse 11, the people of Jericho, it says, we heard it. And when we heard it, our hearts melted. God proved that he was greater than all things. He proved that he was greater than the gods of Egypt. He proved that he was greater than the gods of the Ammonites. Prove it we say to God, and he says back to us, I did. You see, this is, this is the witness, not just of this passage in Joshua chapter 2, but the entire Bible points to the truth that Jesus, sorry, that God is the sovereign over all things. He created the heavens and the earth, it says in Genesis chapter 1, he parted the Red Sea, he defeated armies, he sent manna from heaven, he, he caused water to come out of a rock, he even turned the clock back so that Israel could continue fighting and overcome their enemy. And so there's no surprise that when Jesus eventually comes onto the scene <clears throat> many years later and he claims to those who listen, I am God, there's no surprise that Jesus carried on these proofs to show that he is sovereign. He walked on water. He fed 5,000 people with a small bit of fish and bread. He turned water into wine. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He went to the cross and he overcame death forever. He cheated the grave we say to Jesus, prove it. And he says to us, I have. Not just one or two signs in some specific little pocket of history that we can easily dismiss as myths, but many consistently, amazingly, extraordinarily over time. And so this woman, Rahab, she sees the evidence. She knows what it points to. And she understands and she confesses, Yahweh, God of Israel, he is sovereign over all. We know it, she says. I wonder what about you this evening as you, you hear these things, as, as you may become more familiar as you go through reading the Bible and hearing these amazing accounts of acts of God that demonstrate his sovereignty. What do you think about when you hear these accounts? Do they occur to you as, as nice little myths that these ancient people used to believe maybe we can dismiss the odd one or two myth accounts but how do you treat these consistent extraordinary signs and manifestations across the centuries recorded in the pages of the bible it is impossible to dismiss as a myth i wonder have you taken the time to examine it more clearly more honestly for yourself. These signs to the sovereignty of God just simply cannot be ignored. So what is it? We've heard what is it? The sovereignty of God is, is, is how he is king over all things. He is greater than all things. And he shows that time and again. So we're going to come now to think a bit more personally about what difference does it make? We've maybe got a bit of a better idea about the sovereignty of God. What difference does it make when we look at these signs and these acts in history? Well, we see in this passage three responses, 
Three, three different types of people that respond to the sovereignty of God. And don't forget, the people that respond in Joshua 2 are, are, are living within recent memory of the parting of the Red Sea and the overcoming of Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites. So it's not like years have passed, centuries, and this myth has arisen. They actually heard the stories for themselves firsthand. So what, what difference does it make? <clears throat> well, number one, when you understand the sovereignty of God, it provokes fear. It provokes fear. Like the residents of Jericho. The residents of Jericho say, we, we heard these stories. We know. We cannot deny them. It says in verse 9, Fear of you, you Israelites, has fallen upon us. The inhabitants of Jericho just melt away. In verse 11 it says, Our hearts melted, there was no spirit left in any man. See, Jericho was another city-state, rather like Sihon and Og, like their cities. Jericho was the next one on the list. They thought they had an impregnable wall. They thought they were defended well. They had a certain amount of confidence and strength that came from knowing that they were secure. And suddenly... This God of the Israelites comes along and proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is greater than even the strongest enemies. He can, he can literally move vast bodies of water so his people can cross through. And suddenly there they are, these residents of Jericho, hearing about this great God, hearing of the mighty acts that he has done, and their hearts melt within them. Their confidence became drained, zapped away. Suddenly they were aware of their weakness and that provoked within them fear. Their hearts melted away. Why is that? Because the sovereignty of God, you see, when you understand it, when you understand the sovereignty of God, it shows you up. It exposes within you pretense. Things that you have built up over time. Perhaps things that you've put your confidence in. Walls that you have built in order to secure yourself, like the walls of Jericho. Suddenly, before a sovereign God, they don't feel that secure. They don't look that impressive, after all. We all do it. We all look for security and safety in lots of things, in, whether it's in people whether it's in relationships or circumstances or finances or what have you. We all do it. But you see, when we first start to understand the sovereignty of God, it just lays us bare. We realise that these other things before him have no strength whatsoever. It makes us incredibly uncomfortable. First response is fear. But the second response we see is faith. When you look at Rahab, when she looks at the evidence of what she sees before her, she comes to the conclusion that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is sovereign. And yet she doesn't fall apart. She doesn't melt with fear, although she should. She doesn't fold or flap. Yahweh, God, is sovereign, yes. But she comes to him to seek refuge for, for safety and deliverance. For her, sovereignty of God may have filled her with fear, but that's not what we see. 
See, Rahab doesn't really have much going for her compared to her own contemporary standards. She was a woman, which automatically put her at a disadvantage in ancient Near Eastern society. She was single. I don't know if you caught that. Um, in verse sort of 12 and 13, she talks about her father and her mother and brothers and sisters, but she doesn't refer to her husband or her own children. She's a single woman. She's a pagan, we know that. But she's a prostitute. She makes a living by selling her body to the highest bidder. She doesn't have much going for her in the eyes of the world. She is far away from the God of Israel who is sovereign and yet she comes to him for mercy. She seeks refuge in him. And so she speaks to Yahweh, God's representatives, the spies. She says to them, deliver me. I know, she says, Yahweh is sovereign. He is above gods, all the gods. He is over me. He is Lord and King. And so deal with me kindly. I've dealt with you kindly, she says to the spies. Now help me. And the spies respond and say, okay. You understand that Yahweh is sovereign. You get it. He's over all, and, and you, you ask for his deliverance. And so when you ask, you shall get it. You shall receive. We will give you a guarantee, they say. Our life for yours, even to death, in verse 14. As we'll see in a few weeks' time, when Jericho actually gets taken apart literally by the Israelites, Rahab and all in her house, all her extended family are safe. They're secure. And it says there that <clears throat> later on in chapter 6, Rahab lived in Israel to this day. Many years later, it appears that Rahab not only is an outsider who just gets away by the skin of her teeth, she actually comes into the covenant community of the people of Israel. She enters in. She joins with the people. She becomes one of them. Even more amazing when you read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. The big family line, the, the, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Who do we see listed as one of the great, 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 great grandmothers of Jesus? Rahab, who had a child with a man called Salmon, and the child was called Boaz. And Boaz had a child with a woman called Ruth, and his name was Obed. And Obed had a child called Jesse, and Jesse had a child called David. And he became the great king of Israel. You see where Rahab came from. You can see how she took her place in God's plans. When she saw that God is sovereign, when she looked at where the evidence was pointing, she believed. She came to faith in him. She came to him for mercy and deliverance and she received grace and honour. When you understand the sovereignty of God, it will result in faith, it will result in fear, and thirdly and finally, it will result in strength. And we see this among Israel and the spies. 
almost the opposite of Jericho. The people of Jericho, their hearts melted. The people of Israel, their hearts were strengthened, galvanized. The, the spies went through this near-death experience. If you could just imagine, they went into to lodge with, with Rahab. They were ratted out by somebody. The authorities came to hear of them. They were hidden under this soggy flax on the roof of Rahab. They were almost cast upon Rahab for mercy. They were locked in the city overnight. And yet throughout all of this, they came out of this experience back to the camp. They came back strengthened. They saw the sovereignty of God at work and it strengthened them. It gave them a power. It gave them confidence. When they heard that Jericho said, the Lord has given you this land. They escaped out the window down a rope, fled back to camp, reported back to Joshua and said, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands when they saw the sovereignty of God at work. We sense his victory. Their hearts are melting away. This land is ours. Come on, let's take possession. God promised to give us this land and yet now we feel it. Now there is a, an assurance, a, a confidence that he gives. We've heard the stories about God, but now we know they are true. God is sovereign. He has shown us his favor. He has demonstrated his sovereignty. His strength has strengthened us. Let's do this. Let's take possession. The sovereignty of God. You see those three responses. Fear, faith, strength. So let's bring this together and ask ourselves, how does, has God apply his sovereignty, the riches of his sovereignty to us? How does he help us take possession? How does this stuff about God strengthen our hearts? Maybe, maybe you feel weak, that your heart is, is, is in effect melting away within you. How does the sovereignty of God lead to hearts that are full of strength and resilience? How does he take weak and distracted hearts and turn them into sharpened hearts that are focused on his mission? How does he do it? He does it in two ways. Number one, through a singular event. And number two, through continual effects. That's how he does it. The singular event first is the gospel. That is how God shows us and gives us his sovereignty, if you like, the strength that comes from it, through Jesus. See, God's greatest sign of his sovereignty came through the death and resurrection, not just of any man, but of the Son of God. We might say to God, you say you're sovereign, prove it. And he replies, I have. We might come to God and say, deliver me. And he replies and says, I shall. You see, in the gospel, we come to a sovereign God. We come before God in the gospel and say, God, I am laid bare before you. All the things that I look to for confidence and for strength and assurance, they are as nothing before you. God, you are over all. You're over every God 
You're over every power. You're over me. In the gospel, we come before God and say, deal kindly with me. But in the gospel, God answers, I have. I have dealt kindly with you and faithfully with you. In the gospel, you see, God says to us, my life for yours, even to death. Rather than avoiding death, Jesus gave himself to death. His life for ours. So that we can be delivered from the coming destruction that is, that is ours. That we deserve because of our sins and our fullness and our mess. When we see in, in Jesus... When we see in the gospel what the sovereign God did to rescue you, that results not in fear, not in the fear of Jericho, not in the the cowering away because you've been exposed horribly. But when you see Christ in the gospel and what he's done for you, it will result in faith. It will result in strength. Not because you got strength, precisely because you don't it's because Jesus has strength and he he gives it to you that's how God shows his sovereign power to us most clearly and definitively by raising Christ from the dead and applying it to you that's how God applies his sovereignty to you in that singular event in the gospel but it has a continual effect. The second half. God continues declaring and demonstrating that he is sovereign. Now, today, God continues to demonstrate that he is sovereign. Does it in three ways, and with these we're done. Firstly, he does it through signs, through his covenant people, through his church. Signs, through the spirit-filled community. Signs and wonders. God, in his grace and in his mercy, pours out gifts. He manifests his power through his church in various times and in various ways, through prophecy, through healing, through perhaps the gift of tongues, through extraordinary signs of his sovereign power and his presence, distributed at his will. And yet all pointing us to Jesus, strengthening our hearts, strengthening our church, confirming and affirming that he is sovereign. He does it through signs. He does it through the sacrament, the bread and the wine, and the baptism. We're going to come to the bread and the wine in a few moments. But the sacrament, the bread and the wine, is this continual reminder and refreshment of the gospel. It is the word of God enacted. The sacrament, whether it's this or the baptism, it's not primarily something we do. Primarily, first of all, it is something that God does for us. He declares his gospel through the bread and the wine. He builds us up through the bread and the wine. He strengthens our faith through the bread and the wine when we feed on Christ by faith. He shows his sovereignty through signs. He shows his sovereignty through the sacrament. Thirdly and finally, he shows his sovereignty through 
surety. Three S's. Surety. Sense that I know, that I know, that I know, that I know that God is sovereign and he is for me. And occasionally God, in his grace and his mercy, imparts that level of assurance to his people, whether it's through signs in the church, whether it's through the sacrament, whether it be through the word of God, the Bible read and preached, whether it be through times of prayer or contemplation or meditation or other means, God, at times, as he chooses, may grant unusual levels of conviction and confidence to his people. Assurance is what the old guys used to call it. That you know that you know that you know that God is for you. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous preacher of the previous century, has this illustration. He says, imagine a child out walking one day with his or her father in the park, walking side by side. There they go, enjoying the weather. They're in relationship. They're together. They know it. The child knows the father. The father knows the child. And they're just happy being together. But imagine... At one moment, love wells up within the heart of the father and he sweeps the child off its feet and he gives him or her a warm embrace. And he says to his child, I love you. I'm for you. I love you. That is what surety is like for us. This deep Awareness beyond a shadow of a doubt when God takes us up into himself and says, I love you, I love you, I love you, I am for you. At that moment, we, are sh- we, we believed it before. But at that moment, we know that we know that we know that God is sovereign, that we are truly loved by him, that the gospel is true, that we have been delivered eternally from, from, from our sin and, and fully, that our guilt is taken away, that God is with us and we are with him. And that comes home with stunning depth when God sweeps us off of our feet and embraces us. We're going to take the sacrament together in a few few minutes. But before we do that, we're going to have a time of of prayer. And we're going to ask together as, as a group that the sovereign Lord, God of the universe, will affirm to us his his sovereignty, his power, his love. And so we're going to pray that he'll do that for us and to us. As as you've been listening to this discussion of Joshua chapter 2, I wonder what happens when you have heard of these signs of God's sovereignty. These acts in history of God sweeping down and doing something amazing. What happens when you look at the cross of Jesus? What happens when you peer into the empty grave and realise that he has risen? What do you do? What happens in your heart?
Are you filled with fear? Well, you need to know that the sovereign God is sovereign, but he is loving. Maybe you already have faith in Jesus at at some level or other, and yet you desire an affirmation of God's love for you. And so we're going to ask that now together as we come to a time of prayer and thinking. We're going to ask for signs to be given to our church to confirm and affirm the sovereignty of God. We're going to pray that as we come to taste the sacrament, that again he declares to us that we are children of God and he loves us. We're going to ask for that surety, that deep conviction that we belong to him that he is sovereign and it is well with us so why don't you you stand up just now we're going to stand together guys maybe just come and uh, lead us in some music and we're going to pray through those things Let's pray. Father God, Lord of heaven and earth, you are above all powers. You are above all other gods. You're above all human beings. You're above every thought. You're above every good. You're above every wrong thing that has ever happened. Everything you are over. You are sovereign. Father, may you come to us this evening. Although you are sovereign, come to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, by your Holy Spirit. Show us these amazing, extraordinary signs throughout history. Show us Jesus. Show us that empty grave. Father, grant us that affirmation, that assurance that we belong to you and you to us. Grant us signs, grant us answered prayers, grant us healings, Grant us signs of your sovereign power in our presence. Grant us, as we come to the sacrament, the bread and the wine, a deeper, richer, stronger faith in you. Grant us surety by your Holy Spirit. Lift us up. Remind us that we know, that we know, that we know, that we know that you are for us, that you love us, and that you would stop at nothing to win us to yourself, not even withholding your son, your only son.